The University of Florida College of Medicine is accredited by the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education, ACCME, to provide continuing medical education for physicians. The University of Florida College of Medicine designates this enduring material for a maximum of 0.25 AMA PRA Category 1 credit. Physicians should claim only the credit commensurate with the extent of their participation in this activity. Welcome to UF Health Med EdCast with UF Health Shands Hospital. I'm Melanie Cole, and today we're discussing physician-modified endovascular grafts for treatment of aortic aneurysm. Joining me is Dr. Zane Shahed. He's an assistant professor in the Division of Vascular Surgery and Endovascular Therapy at the University of Florida College of Medicine, and he practices at UF Health Shands Hospital. Dr. Shahed, I'm so glad to have you with us today. I found this fascinating research. I'm really glad we're doing this topic, and I've been looking forward to this podcast. Can you start with a little bit of the evolution of endovascular repair of aortic pathology in patients with aortic aneurysm? Why has this shown to be a bit prohibitive? Why the need for improved device design? Yeah. Thank you, Melanie, for, for having me. So overall, generally, open repair has been the gold standard for repair of abdominal and thoracoabdominal aortic aneurysms. Over the past three decades or so, however, there has been refinement of EVAR technology. And now that's available, and there have been, there have been various commercial endograph systems that are now available. Many of those are now in their third or fourth generation. That has led to a transition of clinical practice from open surgical repair to EVAR in the elective management of uh, abdominal aortic aneurysms and in some cases, uh, thoracic abdominal aortic aneurysms. Currently in the U.S., actually, EVAR far exceeds open repair and especially out in the community. There has been, over time, as this transition has happened, we have seen patients sort of coming, uh, patients who've had endovascular repair done 10 to 15 years ago now starting having problems. That can mean they've had migration of their endografts, they've developed endo leaks, they've developed infections or other issues required secondary interventions, either more complex endovascular repairs or open repairs. Well, thank you for that explanation. So as more and more patients who would be deemed unsuitable candidates, maybe based on atomic criteria, right, anatomic criteria, I'd like you to tell us now about physician-modified endovascular grafts. What are they? And what does that mean when you say physician-modified? Does it mean custom design has been promoted with each device, custom-made for a specific patient? Please explain that to other providers. Yeah. So physician-modified endovascular grafts is a term that's used to describe physician modifications or modifications that I make to commercially available abdominal and thoracic endografts. So that means creation of fenestrations or holes, direction branches, or, or scallops. It sort of depends on the patient's anatomy and what we are treating. So these devices are specifically made for each patient or modified for each specific patient. No two devices are the same. And there are certain sort of ways how you modify those, and, and there are certain indications for these, which we'll discuss in a bit. So I'd like to get right into that, and then tell us about the role of PMEG in the treatment of complex aortic aneurysms. Tell us about those clinical indications and patient selection. Right. It's indicated for patients with complex abdominal aortic aneurysms, which includes juxtarenal aneurysms, pararenal and suprarenal aneurysms. 
It's also indicated for patients with uh, uh, thoracic abdominal aortic aneurysms, types 1 to 5, depending on what the patient has. They're also indicated in patients who've had uh, chronic dissections with now aneurysmal dilatation. And something that we see more and more commonly, it's also indicated in patients who've had failed prior endovascular aortic repairs or EVARs or open repairs. These patients are generally not candidates for open repair. They're not candidates for commercially available fenestrated endografts, and they cannot be enrolled in industry-sponsored clinical trials for the new and upcoming endografts. We do have a pretty uh, strict inclusion and exclusion criteria. So I told you a little bit about what the indications are as far as, and obviously those patients are included in the study. But in addition to that, patients need to be 18 years of age or older and be able to sign consent for the procedure. There are very specific anatomical criteria that are also important. There needs to be a good proximal landing zone in the aorta of appropriate size. We also need an appropriate landing zone, distal landing zone, either in the aorta or the iliac vessels of appropriate size. And then we need to have our target vessels, which are the, generally the visceral vessels, and which include the superior mesenteric artery, celiac artery, and the renal arteries to be of certain size to be able to put stents in them. In addition, the overall health of the patients is important. We do these procedures and we, in, in hopes that we prolong their life and their aortic-related morbidity and mortality is decreased. So we do want to see that the predicted one-year rupture risk of the aneurysm is higher than the uh, one-year mortality after repair. So in case we're doing a complicated operation, which will eventually prolong their life. As far as challenges, Dr. Shahed, one might imagine that any device customization involves a time delay between patient sizing, manufacture of the device, the implantation event itself. Tell us a little bit about how long currently the process takes in the best of circumstances and how you have found to be the case. How have you addressed this challenge? Yeah, so... So that's a good question. So these modifications are made on-site at UF Health Shands Hospital. That is, we make those modifications ourselves. So the grafts that are provided by the company are commercially available. We have them on stock. So there is no as such delay for a new graft to be made for the patient. We make the modifications the day of the operation. So, for example, if a person comes into clinic today and wants this operation and he has a really large aneurysm and we think it needs to happen within a week or so, we can fit him in the schedule as soon as tomorrow. Generally, no one needs that kind of thing, but maybe even next week. And then what we do is every patient gets a CT scan. So we upload the CT scan in our special uh, center line software, and then we take precise measurements to the nearest millimeter as to where the, the important branches, which I mentioned, which are generally the celiac, the SMA, and the renals come off. And then we modify the graft the day of the operation based on those measurements. It takes me approximately uh, one to two hours to make the modifications to the graft. And I usually start making the modifications before the patient is brought back into the operating room. And by the time the patient comes in, is intubated, and has the appropriate lines placed by the anesthesia team, the graft is ready and we're ready to start the case. Wow, that's absolutely fascinating. Now I'd like to address the elephant in the room. Dr. Shahed, for other providers, does there exist a legal risk to modifying an existing FDA-approved medical device? Does this involve product liability? Can you speak to other providers about this portion of this? 
Yeah. yeah, that's a good question. So this is considered an off-label repair, no doubt about that. And I am very clear to uh, my patients and our consents are very clear about that. We are, again, we're only offering this to patients who are not candidates for an open operation, not candidates for sort of commercially available endovascular grafts, finished endovascular grafts, and cannot be enrolled in clinical trials. And these patients understand that and we get special referrals with the understanding that that's what they will be getting. Now, we do have sort of collected some data over the last couple of years, which we are planning to submit to the FDA to try to obtain an investigational device exemption so we can do these procedures under the umbrella of a clinical trial. I think that will expand our indications and allow us to treat more patients as well. Is there a difficult learning curve to what you're doing? You said it takes you a couple of hours to modify the device. Are there technical considerations you would like to share with other providers to help them achieve better outcomes? Should they head into this? So yes, yes. I think there, there is a steep steep learning curve for this. These procedures are generally done at sort of large academic centers because it's, 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 it's not just me. It's a whole team, to be honest. So uh, you need to have good anesthesia staff. You need to have good nurses. You need to have good surgical techs, good IR techs, and a good ICU team to sort of understand what we're, what we're doing. The modification, like you said, takes one to two hours. And that's, I think, over time, I've sort of become faster in doing these. I think when I initially, when I was in training, when I was doing these, it took me three hours or longer to modify a graft. Really, the most important thing about modification is your planning. So when you do your measurements on your CT scan, you, they need to be really accurate. And generally what we do here at UF Health Shands Hospital is I make my own measurements and there's a second person and sometimes a third person who does their own measurements and then we compare and this is to the nearest millimeter to make sure that our measurements are accurate and then we make those modifications. And there are multiple ways to make modifications. I mean, people do it a little differently, but what we've seen and we've had good results with is is just reinforcing our fenestrations with PTFE or Teflon and we put special coils around them that allows us to see them really well under fluoroscopy. So I think I think it's not easy for people everywhere in the community to do these cases because of the support needed and the complexity of imaging required. So most of these, for, for those reasons, most of these patients are referred to big uh, tertiary or quaternary care centers, and there are very few of those that are actually doing these operations. That's a great point that you made, and I'd like you to reiterate that as we wrap up. I'd like you to first tell us how your outcomes have been. And where do you see this going in the future? Do you have final thoughts for physicians as far as immediate device modification and how it really, as you just said, should be performed at centers completely familiar with all advanced endovascular aortic and visceral artery techniques and a high volume of these fenestrated procedures? Right. Yeah. So the outcomes, so, uh, so over the, our outcomes for the last two years have been excellent. We've had no deaths in the first 30 days, which is amazing. Our target vessel cannulation, which is our SMA, celiac, and the renals, has been close to 100%. Spinal cord ischemia, which is a major risk with complex aneurysms, specifically large thoracobdominal aortic aneurysms, has been less than 3 to 5% in our series. Secondary reintervention rate for endoleaks or aneurysms, uh, proximally or distally, has been less than 5 to 7%. In addition, the incidence of major cardiac events, renal dysfunction, stroke, etc., and other in-hospital complications has been low. 
but of course, I think this seems all this uh, all seems very rosy. But I think as we continue to do more cases and gather more long-term data, I think these numbers are bound to change. And then, as far as the sort of closing statements, I think the, this is a really complex operation. I think straightforward endovascular repairs, infernal repairs, absolutely can be done anywhere in the community who have people who have basic understanding of aortic pathology. This requires team effort. This requires a lot of complex uh, sort of planning equipment, and it requires a lot of knowledge in how to a, do the operation and what to do if the operation doesn't go well. I mean, it's bound to happen at some point where you're in, in a spot where you're not sure what to do next. You need sort of your partners that ha- have an understanding of how to deal with those issues, and you ha- need to have experience to deal with those issues. And that can only be done in places who do a high volume of these cases. I think if you're doing one or two of these a year, I think the outcomes are bound to be not that good. But just like with any other sort of uh, complex operation. We've now been doing one or two a week. So as you can imagine, so we've, we've, we've had those complex issues, we've dealt with those, and we've thankfully have really good outcomes. What an interesting interview this was. Thank you so much, Dr. Shahed, for joining us today and sharing this incredible information and this incredible technique that you're using at UF Health Shands Hospital to refer your patient for physician-modified endovascular graft for treatment of aortic aneurysms or to listen to more podcasts from our experts, you can visit ufhealth.org medmatters. That concludes today's episode of UF Health Med EdCast with UF Health Shands Hospital. For updates on the latest medical advancements, breakthroughs, and research, follow us on your social channels. I'm Melanie Cole.